0: Beautiful to see the music team back together. If the word cloud comes up, uh, the reason we gather together in church is uh, is because God encourages. And how do we know that? Is because the Bible tells us don't forsake the gathering. And uh, there's a lot of people that have statistics say that uh, a church attendance is still on the way down, meaning that uh, when you look around the culture, or if you're driving to church, you'll probably see more and more cars that stay in the driveway um, because they just don't see the need to come and meet with God. Um, My prayer is that we will never neglect that. We're a Bible-believing church because the here is where the good news is. That's what the gospel-driven is all about. It shows us that we have something that is a remedy for all the brokenness And it is forgiveness that we find in Jesus Christ. And because there is hope in the gospel, then we can see that it changes how we treat one another, how we care for the generations, how we'd like to see uh, children and grandparents as well as parents all worshiping together uh, to be able to get ready for our eternity with Jesus. At this time, though, it is a privilege, as as we're dealing with the gospel, uh, to open up the Word of God. So let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word as it was given in the originals. Today we'll be looking at the book of Romans, and those of you that want to look in your pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 1194. Uh, We're going to begin with the first seven verses of the epistle uh, of Paul to the Romans. So let us look at this scripture for us. Uh, It is a fascinating text. Many times it's skipped over because folks are interested in the doctrines that he begins to expound, especially in verse uh, 18 and on. But all of these things are set up by the introductory words. This is God's word, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be the saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. I'd like to reread it, and I'd like to highlight a couple of things as we go through the second time. Uh, this, This message today is focusing around the concept of a call, a calling. A lot of people don't know what a calling is. I think all of you have experienced it if you are a Christian. And Paul uses this word quite a bit, but uh, let's as we go through it today, I'll, I'll uh, read it again and try to rephrase it and highlight a few things for you to take notice of this text. So we find out in verse 1, Paul identifies himself and he says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle. This is right at the beginning, the calling. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, I'm called to be an apostle, a sent one, and in so doing he says, I've been set apart for the gospel of God. In other words, there's this thing called good news, the gospel, the evangelion. I've been set apart to it, in other words, from all the other things, this is what God's called me to to be connected to. And then he explains the gospel of God, God's gospel. And in verse 2 he says, which God promised beforehand through the prophets in the scriptures. In other words, this good news is not new news. We've already heard of it from the prophets. And we've seen it in the holy scriptures because in this time, Paul is referencing the Old Testament. And when you get this good news, verse 3, it is not about Paul's life. It is about God's Son. That's what the Romans are supposed to hear. And he says, God's son. And he, and he presents him in two contrasts. In verse 3, he says, uh, he was a son of David, according to the flesh. And in verse 4, he was a son of God, according to the resurrection. Now, let me read those for you. In verse 3, he says, uh, concerning his son, who was a descendant from David according to the flesh. In other words, literally, physically, he was born in the lineage of David, and that meant to the people in Rome that he was royalty. He was the king. So he grabs the attention of these people in Rome. And in verse 4, not only is he a son of David, but he was declared to be the son of God with power. In other words, people in Rome understood power. They understood the legions. They understood all of their wisdom and their their powerful government. But Jesus is the son of God with power. According to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Up to this point, he's mentioned that he's a servant of Jesus. But now he says the good news is all about Jesus Christ. And you can see that at the end of verse 4. Jesus Christ... Our Lord, not just my God, but our Lord. Verse 5 through whom, through Jesus Christ, we have received a couple of things. He's given us the gift of grace, and He's given us in this apostleship, He says, uh, He's given me the calling of an apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name, not just locally. Not just in Jerusalem, but he says, among all the nations. He's talking about the known inhabited world. And he just throws in there at the end, verse 6. Oh yeah, and even you guys in Rome. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 7. And this is where he now picks up after that introductory. To you in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as the word of God is, is in front of us, as it's being uh, heard in our ears and processed in our minds, we pray that you will give us what we need, which is faith. Faith comes by hearing your word. And man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from you. These God-breathed-out scriptures. I do pray, O Lord, that you will give us insight. Strengthen us for the journey ahead. Prepare us to come to the Lord's table in communion. And I pray that you will give us that moment, that wow moment of being still of having our soul be comforted because of your great love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear ye, hear ye, the Honorable God has spoken and is speaking. Now, when I first mentioned those words, some of you were taken back to either some TV shows or maybe your own experience in a courtroom. And what happens when you hear that, hear ye, hear ye, the Honorable, you get this sense that Something is about to happen. The court is about to come into session... ...and uh, you also realize that you better start paying attention. One more thing you realize is you're not in charge. Somebody else is calling the shots and it's all happening... ...and somebody else is going to make the determination. And that, I think, is an appropriate way for us to begin these words... ...in the opening book of Romans. An epistle that has grabbed so many people's attention... Today we are looking at these words of, that, that introduced the epistle. This epistle that has transformed many, many lives. And Martin Luther couldn't even get through the first chapter without being overcome by verse 17. The just shall live by faith. Verse 16 and 17. It's pretty amazing. Many of you may not have even read through the whole book, all 16 chapters. Maybe it takes too long for you to be able to digest it. But God provided ...to the people of Rome a treatise that has been so helpful... ...in explaining so much about God's great and wonderful salvation. Now, Paul has not yet been actually able to go to Rome. He wants to take the gospel there to this capital city. He wants to go to this influential hub... ...that links the political, the military, the social... ...and even the intellectual uh, uh, people... You know, folks that are wrapped up with all the things that seem to shape society. He appears at this time to be in Corinth. Because if you read chapter 16, you'll find out that he is entrusting his letter to Phoebe, who is from Crencia, which is a suburb there of, of Corinth. And the letter is going to be sent over to this capital city there. And if you have the picture, if you bring it up, uh, you can see the, uh, the the city of Rome. Maybe you can't see it very well, but you can recognize the... Um, you can recognize the Mediterranean Sea here. If this is Israel and Jerusalem, all the way over here is where Rome is. And Paul seems to be on this side of Greece at Corinth, wanting to be able to go over to Italy. That is the, uh, the context for where we are. And uh, Paul, Paul has wanted to go there for a long time. Have any of you figured out why? Why did he want to go to the big city? Do you think they had better shows there? Do you think that um, they had better restaurants? Maybe he he just was impressed with the idea of seeing those big big, um, uh, temples to the different gods. Or maybe, like when I first went to Rome, you had to see the Colosseum. Why did Paul want to go there? When you you understand this, you're going to realize that Paul's interest in Rome was largely because God had given him a call or a calling. And we'll look at that calling in a few moments. But that calling on the road to to Damascus back in Acts chapter 9 was a calling that said, Paul, or actually he was Saul at the time, he says, you think you have your own agenda. You have been pretty zealous about what you want. You've even got permission to do things that were unthinkable. To get permission to kill people, to imprison people... ...and even to export your power to go not only from from the Israel community... ...but up into Syria to Damascus. He He was into it. But in that call, Jesus called him by name. And he says, look, I've got something else for you to be doing. You're going to be communicating the gospel by your words, deeds, and passions, not just to people that are local, but to kings and those in authority. Now, think about answering that question again. Why did Paul want to go to Rome? Because God had given him a calling to go preach to the emperor, to the Caesar, to to the leaders. And that's where he was planning to go. Now, that's how we begin the service today, In in this particular verse, the calling is is about Paul, and you find it in verse one. And I'll I'll reread those again for you. Uh, The the word is kletos kletos in the Greek, and it 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 has it definitely is a call, or some would say it's an invitation. but I'll explain that for you as we go a little bit more. The three uses that he has in these first seven verses, the first one is in verse 1, called to be an apostle. Now, in the, in the Greek, you only have two words. It's the call and then apostolos. Everybody can recognize that means the apostle. So there's this sense of called apostle. Now, if you go down to verse, uh, uh, towards, I guess it's down in, in verse f- uh, 5 or 6, he's, and I'll read it for you here. He says, to those, and I'm looking here at the verse 6, including you who are called, and then the rest of that verse, it has the word kletos, but then it has only two other words, and it's Iesu Christus. Now, for those of you that are picking it up, Iesu Christu is Jesus Christ. But it's in a tense, uh, the ending of it gives it away, that it shows possession. And so, really, the way that it's read, you who are Jesus Christ's possessed. You're you're his possession. You belong to him. And that's why it's translated for us, uh, for those who belong to Jesus. Those of you that are already in Christ. Those of you that are connected to Jesus. Now in verse 7, he echoes this, but he does it a little differently. And he says, those who are clitoi, Iesu Christu. And in this particular one, um, he ends up saying they are called, excuse me, And in, in verses 7, they're called to be agioi, uh, agio, which has to do with, uh, it's, I mispronounced it, but it has to do with holy. And that's where you get the idea of saints, because saints are holy ones. Saints are not perfect people, but saints are the ones who are declared or set apart to be gods. They're They're a particular group. And the opposite of being a saint would be to be, Not in the body of Christ, and so when you look here, you can see you're called an apostle, called to, to to be possessed or to be Jesus' possession, and you're also called to be holy or holy ones, saints. Now, in these first seven verses, does that make any difference to you that God's done a lot of calling? Well, I hope that you will see that as we go through the text today, that there's three aspects about this call. It is not self-generated, that it is not self-serving, and it is not self-directed. So let's look at these very quick before we come to the Lord's table. This call is originated by God. It is not self-generated. If you look back to verse one, you're going to see Paul says, hey, I'm not in charge, in verse 1, he says, I am a servant, I'm a doulos, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's my master, I do his bidding. That's how he introduces himself to the elite that are in Rome. And then as he says, hey, I'm, one of, I'm on Jesus' team, uh, Jesus is my boss. He says, I have been called to the apostle status. This is the, the point I wanted to really drive home. What is a calling to be an apostle? Well, first of all, let's explain uh, that that God is the author of this. And God had purpose back in Ephesians chapter 4, that once the uh, redemption had been accomplished on Calvary's cross, that Jesus would rise from the dead, and then he would rise into heaven, as we say, the ascension. And as he's going to heaven, in Ephesians 4, he says that he gave to the church leadership gifts. In Sunday school, we mentioned them by name. Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. So when he is going up, he gives to the organization of the, uh, he gives to the organism of the church this organization. He says, "There's uh, there's a gift of the apostleship position. And so Paul now, in the beginning of chapter one of Romans, he introduces himself to the people of Rome and he says, I have been called by God as the apostle. I'm the sent one. And then as the apostle, I have been set apart for the gospel purposes. It's God's gospel. And so as you look here, you can clearly see that he did not call himself. He was called by God. He, therefore, God is the one who gets all the credit and all the glory. And that's why we always want to finish, to God be the glory, great things he has done. Because God is the author and the finisher of the faith. If you go to Romans chapter 8, and I'll have that verse in front of me as well, you can see that the idea of the calling is something that is not outside of God's parameter. But in verse 28, you can see how it's clearly there. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called. I don't know if you realize that the word called was in that wonderful prescription. Let me read it again now that you know that he's talking about a calling. For we, and, and, and he says in verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God orchestrates it together for his purposes, for those who are called according to God's purpose. In a sense, who's, do, who's doing the calling again? God is. And when you see this, you can say, wow, this is not just a flippant kind of thing. God is in the business of calling. Now, if you go on to verse 29 and 30, you can see that it's not done. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Okay, so you have these two actions. You have the foreknowledge, and then you have the predestining. That's an action verb there that God knew, and then he also predestined. And I also tend to say that when you have this foreknew, uh, this is a similar translation from... uh, from, the, from uh, the understanding of the pro-life verse that says that in our mother's womb, he knew us. He formed our inward parts. God is keenly aware of who you are. So then he says, for those who he has known, he has also predestined or predetermined to be like Jesus, his son. So he said, this is a part of the gospel of God, and he explains there in Romans eight twenty nine, 29, uh, in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren, and then he goes on to say, and those that he has predestined, he has also done what? You guys are catching on, I think. God called. And so you can see some interesting things in this particular text about God being the author and the finisher of the faith. Uh, in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, in Philippians 1, 6, he ends up just spelling out real clear to the people in Philippi. And, and as he does, in, he says, and those, uh, in Philippians 1, 6, he argues that God is the beginner, That he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. So you can see who is the author and the finisher of the faith as Revelation talks about. Uh, You can see that Paul is teaching over and over that God is the author and he is the one that does the call. Jesus did this in his ministry as well. He did. And you can look at how he called the disciples and they would hear his voice and they would follow him. Now, how does God do this call? In John chapter 15, verse 16, you can hear it explained as he's looking at his disciples and he says, you did not choose me. He says, I have chosen you. So who does the choosing? God, again, is the one. That's why I said this is not self-generated. God goes, and and, and in, in John 15, 16, he clearly explains how I have chosen you. I have ordained you. I have commissioned you that you should go forth and bring forth fruit. And that this fruit should remain. It's really quite beautiful when you understand how God is big in the ministry. Now I told you I wanted to explain this call to ministry, and the best illustration is to have you turn to Acts chapter nine. In Acts chapter nine, you're going to find that this, the historical account of the call that came to our brother. Acts chapter nine, verse three. Now, when Saul was on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice. And basically you're saying, you hear a voice calling to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, Who are you, Lord? Verse 5, And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now it's really quite interesting how, in this particular calling, you can see that Saul did not initiate it. God did. The major point that I wanted to deal with calling here before we make further application is that God is is the one who knows you. God is the one who made you. He gave you a soul that would never die. You didn't generate it on your own. As I was in the hospital yesterday visiting and there was a Doppler machine and and they were looking at at, uh, one of our church members' hearts as he's getting ready for surgery. And as the Doppler was going through, you could see the different chambers of the wall and you could see the valves opening and closing. And it was just amazing. All the things that were going on inside the body that we could never see. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And God knows it very well because he made us. And that's why when you understand that God is in a position to call us, how are we to respond? There's a cute little picture that I've seen on on the internet. It's a picture of a cell phone. And uh, it's it's almost like if you take this phone and you pop it up and it rings. I'm not going to have it ring for me right now. But if it were to ring um, and it had God on the front of it... um, would you pick up? Or would you hit, um, would you, the other one there, would you hit decline? Ring, 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 ring. Hello? <laughs> it's, it's really interesting when, when, the, when, it, when the shoe is put on you. You know, when God calls you, what do you do? You know, you hope it goes to voicemail? You know, now, having, having put that before you, um, we need to respond to God's call. Now, how much power do you have? Do you really have the power to reject God's call? It's kind of an interesting thing and we'll find a little bit more as paul explains this in the book of romans and and some some folks are going to be really adamant that they know everything and then you're going to hear how paul struggled in chapter 7 and you're going to also hear in romans 9 how god is sovereign it's really fascinating how it all is weaved together it is but when god calls we do need to respond now how did again let me just review a few people's responses How did Saul respond when he was riding his horse and the bright light shone and he heard the voice, Saul, it's almost like the ring. Ring, 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 ring. How did he respond? Who are you, Lord? Immediately, he was aware that God was real. Immediately, he was aware that that Saul wasn't God. He was Lord. And then he, he admits, I don't know you very well. Who are you? And, and the, this is very, very interesting for us because when God calls us, many of us don't want to respond. We think it's spam. And we don't have any problem in just declining it because we don't think that it pertains to us. Because my goodness, God's, if, if God was going to get somebody, he'd get the professional people, right? What do you really call me? What do you really call you? This call is not self-generated. In Isaiah chapter 6, you know that when he saw the Lord, the call from God was, Who will go for me? Who will represent me in this this fallen world? And what did Isaiah do? He fell on his face. He didn't even want to pick up because he he knew that he's in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. It's really interesting. When finally his lips are touched... Kind of somebody helped answer the phone for him, and he says, Here am I. Lord, send me. If you go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 20, you can see when Jesus was looking at these disciples, and they didn't get to see him in his full glory and regalia yet. Jesus has just been this guy that was born in Bethlehem, he was raised up in Nazareth, he is a carpenter's son. You know, he's, he's been almost kicked out of. of of the whole Nazareth region because he he claimed to be the son of God and now they're looking at this Jesus character he says, you, you, follow me. What did they do in response? Oh, Lord, we got to bury our dead, right? No, that was a different illustration. If you look at chapter 4, verse 20, you're going to see immediately, immediately they followed him. When they heard the call, there was no other place to go. I quoted from John chapter six verse 67 and through 69 last week, that, that when other people were leaving, Jesus said, "Are you going to leave as well?" No. Peter said, "We've heard the call. Peter was saying, "You are the Christ. You're the Son of the Living God. There's no other place that has the words of eternal life." And so he said, "I will follow." And he did. Now, I wanted to make the point that this, this call is not self-generated. God is the author of it. Secondly, God is, or this call is not self-serving. The purpose of the calling is to advance God's agenda. Now, the reason why God calls is not because he's tired and he says, you know, I'm old now. <coughs> you know, sometimes I feel like that when, when unpacking the car or something. You know, I wish we had a few more kids around they can help move stuff. You know, does God call you because he's tired and weary because he's gotten so old? And the answer is no. The reason why God calls people, why he did then, and why he does now, is because he has an agenda and a purpose to accomplish. Now, where do we see this purpose? If you open your Bibles, look at verse 5 of chapter 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. This is part of the introductory words. uh, As he explains it to the people, he says, there is a purpose. It is the means that God has chosen us because we are to not just deal with people and say, oh, well, and go on our way. We're actually supposed to see some change in the life of people. Romans chapter 1, if you, if you, if you see it there, it's pretty fascinating, that the Greek terms even for it. He says uh, in, in verse 4, And was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, uh, because of the resurrection. Then in verse 5, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship, and this is the purpose, to bring about... The obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Now, a little bit humorously, do you think he's telling us that we need to be good pet owners and make sure that our, our pets know how to do their business in the right places at the right times? You all know that this is not talking about animals. Who is supposed to have obedience of faith? Um, Do you think you are? Let me read it again. He's given us this gift of grace, and then he gave us the calling to be an apostle for a reason. In other words, he called us for this purpose, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of God's name among the nations. And I'm trying to tell you that that he's going to clarify who's supposed to have the obedience of faith, but I'm trying to help you to apply it. Obedience! Obedience! Let me say it again. Obedience. I remember when I was church planting, they told me that that's not a good word to use in your sermon. You know, there was a popular song that was going to go along with it. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. So those people sat in critique of my sermon and said, don't do that anymore. That's going to harm people. Nobody wants to hear about obedience. So uh, it almost made me feel like we ought to get some kind of an eraser, give it to everybody, and go ahead and erase that verse or that word out of your scripture. We don't want to have obedience, do we? The point is, you do. The reason is, is because God called people so that God's people, bigger people, I mean, the whole group of people, would have an obedience. They would obey God. Now, he puts it in here in an f- interesting way, a phrase. It's the obedience of faith. And so, in some ways, he's connecting James and Paul together here at the beginning of Romans because he's saying, hey, your faith is going to have works that are, in con- that are consistent with the faith. In other words, obedience that is relayed or, or driven out of faith. Your life is going to be changed. And that's exactly what he says in, 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 uh, in Philippians, you know, where he says, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, but the, live, the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, that's in Galatians, who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. But in Philippians, he ended up saying, put all the things that are behind, chapter 3, verse 13, and reach forth unto those things that are before. And I press towards the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. There's a, so many verses that he gives us about the purpose of, of us being changed. We don't obey the voice of this world anymore, but because we have been given the gift of faith by grace, now we have an obedience to it. And you see that he calls people to that end so that all of God's people will have that. And that's where he picks up, if you look there, in verses 5 and verse 6, including you who are called, who are Christ's, but you're called. You see, you, including you in Rome, including you that are far off, may I apply, this obedience of faith. Now, that's pretty amazing when you think about it, but in order for you to become obedient to the faith, how do you get this faith? Now, I'm looking there in verse 5, that he says, through whom we have received grace and the apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of God's name among the nations. Uh, now, that's verse 5. So what did he give before this? And this is the gospel. And you see that in verse at the end of verse 1. I have been called as an apostle to advance the gospel. I've been set apart with my little life. With my life of whether it's 70 years or 90 years or whatever years I got. I've been set apart by God. I've been called to do something. What I'm going to end up doing is to pursue people who have faith and who have a life that is conformity to that faith. They have an obedience of faith. But that faith is not built on some religion. It is built on the gospel. It's God's gospel. It's the good news, the euangelion of God. At the end of verse 1, you can see God has good news for the people in Rome. And God has good news for the people of America. God has good news for the people in this room. When you realize and you see this, it is so beautiful. Uh, this gospel, God promised beforehand to the scriptures, he is, and it's about Jesus. And so he says, again, this is not new. This has been told over and over, all the way from Genesis chapter 3, where there will be one born of a woman who will accomplish this. But it's concerning Jesus, the son of David. He's going to be king. And Jesus, the one who conquered death, By his resurrection. See, the gospel is that there is going to be this newness of life that you have that empowers you to have an obedience of faith in this lifetime. And that's why God has called the apostle. God has called the apostle because he has called people like you, who are Christ's possession... And I think I could go back to John chapter 17 to the high priestly prayer where Jesus was praying, not, not for the whole world, but he was praying for all that the Father had done what? Had given him. So all that were the possession of Christ, that, that he, God has now raised up these apostles that are sent forth with the good news of God's gospel. It's about Jesus Christ. And this good news is going to produce a life that is obedient to the faith in the gospel it's all about what Christ did for them and changed their world. It's pretty amazing. Jesus came in the flesh, but he conquered by having a holy life. There was no other person that could go to that cruel cross except the Christ. He was seen as the son of God in great power because he had a holiness that allowed him to go to the father and assuage the wrath. And how do I know that? Because verse 18 this same chapter. The wrath of this holy God is poured out. And until he gets to chapter three, it's it's misery, misery, misery. There's no hope. There's none that are righteous. No, not one. But then in chapter three, there is a righteousness apart from law-keeping. It's good news through Jesus Christ, the Holy One. Now having said that, the last point here is this call is not self-generated, it is not self-serving because it does God's purpose, and it is not self-directed. It is God's way of engaging this fallen world. I want you to look at verse 7 with me if you will. Verse 7, to all that are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is a typical word that just flows off of my lips. Does it flow off of yours too? If you ever get to read scripture publicly, you get to open up all of the epistles and they sound a lot alike. You know, you get this, uh, to these saints that are in this particular city, grace and peace and sometimes hope and mercy to you as well. Now, when you say that, and I'm saying it a little flippantly because I think a lot of us miss how beautiful it is. Paul is writing to these people in Rome that are in a secular city. They have government officials that have no understanding of morality. They are doing what's right in their own eyes, and usually they're doing the things that would keep them elected, if they were elected. They were doing the things that allowed them to keep the power that they already had. But he writes to them, and hear this slowly, to you guys in Rome who are loved by God. God loves people in Rome. God loves people all around this place. I can't say that God loves everybody because then I'd be a universalist and say there's no place for hell. But God's love can go to the uttermost. You in Rome, you are loved by God. And because God loves you, He calls you to be His saints. To be holy ones, to be not just in Rome, but set apart from the sinners in Rome, to be the holy ones in Rome. God has loved you, God has called you, and because he has done those things, then he opens up and he says, there's grace for you, and there is peace for you. And it comes from the triune God. He mentions the Father, and he mentions the Son, And it's applied by the Holy Spirit. I know that because in Romans chapter 8 we get the affirmation of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. But he says, you don't get what you deserve at the middle of verse 7. Because God loves you, because God has a love for you, he has called you. He is extending a call to you. When God calls you, I've already mentioned, you're supposed to answer. But in Romans chapter 10 verse 14, if you'll turn there, you'll see it there is a response that you're supposed to have when God calls you. Romans chapter 10. He's making an argument about some of the other Jews that he's dealt with, but in verse 14, how then will they call on him of whom they have not believed? Okay, because in verse 13, he has quoted the prophet Joel and also uh, Peter's repetition of it in Acts 2. uh, But he said, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This message is about calling. So this is an interesting twist on it because now instead of God doing the call, people are doing the call. They're supposed to call upon the name of the Lord. And in verse 14, he says, how can you call on him if you have not believed him? If you have no faith in God, there's no way you're going to be calling on God. And he goes on to ask another question. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? If you have never heard God's voice, if you've never heard the word of God in your heart, there's no way that you can, can call out to him because you don't know he's even there. You don't know where he is. In verse, uh, at, at, the, at, at the end of verse 14, And how are they to hear without somebody proclaiming, or preaching. How are they to preach unless they are sent? That's the root word for apostolos, for apostle. You see, God is in the business of calling people to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and in Romans 10 he says, boy, you have beautiful feet when you are one that God has called to pass the good news on. This is not self-directed. God does it. The love of God is, is, is at the starting point. John 3.16 is a great place. For God so loved. And because he loved, he initiated all of this. We didn't initiate it. We have All this grace comes to us, which he says, grace to you in Rome. Why do we get this this undeserved favor? Is it because we're good looking? Is it because we put extra offering in uh, during December? Why does God give grace? Well, let me tell you, if you think that you can give me an answer that has anything to do with you, you don't understand grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Hey, you people in Rome that God has called, it's because he has love for you. And love changes it all. And that's why uh, instead of having punishment, uh, you're going to find that he says, uh, grace to you and peace. Now, do you know anything about peace? I've been doing some counseling with some folks recently, and some of them said, "Well, I don't have peace about that." And I really had kind of knew counsel, but I, I don't like to tell you that that's a good phrase because that doesn't match up with Scripture. And all of if I were to ask you, do you have peace about all your decisions? And all of you are going to say, "Well, probably not." Uh, so let me challenge you: don't use the word flippantly of peace. Okay, Romans chapter five, which is. He's going to explain peace. So let me show you a little bit of a glimpse of what's coming. In chapter 5, verse 1, you can see, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have, we have peace with God. Now that is so cool when you realize that when Paul writes it to the Romans and he says, hey, I've been called to go take this gospel, God's gospel, to people all around the world, including you. And he says, hey, don't you realize God loves people like you? And he has called you be his or he's already elected you so you should be his and then the next thing you know he says grace now to you guys in Rome and God's peace to you in Rome because the peace of God is not achieved by any kind of social justice or by any kind of manipulation. Peace comes because you've been declared righteous, according to the text. Therefore, since we've been justified or declared righteous by faith, we now are at peace with God. And what he's going to be telling you is that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and I'll read that for you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and against all unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And when you realize that God's wrath is being poured out on people, but for us, Romans 5, we have peace. Because God has poured out his wrath on Jesus for us. Do you see the gospel? This is God's gospel. And he has called the apostle to go out there to reach those who God has has called you to his possession so that you would have an obedient faith and be holy ones for him. And then he's going to explain it all throughout the rest of the book. I told you that the word call has five meanings throughout the scripture. The one has to do with an invitation. He calls you to come a second has to do with prayer it's like you're calling out to God and asking for some things and that's what you do the third one is to name something you know like Adam was going around and he was calling the different animals different names that's one way of calling but it's basically labeling Um, then another one is this calling to serve Uh, God calls by name a person for service and the fifth one is to call something uh, that's mine I, I call that mine so you have possession the two things that are under, understood by the calling here in Romans 1-7 is that it's an invitation and it is, a, it is a, not just an, an, a suggestion for service, it is an enlistment of service. Has God called you? Is God calling you right now? We've begun a new year. Usually there's a call from someplace to have New Year's resolutions. I don't know, sometimes... We used to make those. I used to. Um, Sometimes we don't do it anymore because who holds you accountable to them? You just feel guilty because you know you're not going to measure up to all of them. But we do aspire to better things. I'm actually challenging you to listen to the voice of God. What is he calling you to do? I can tell you from the scripture today that like in the people in Rome, hey, there's grace to you and peace to take on this new year because there's no more condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. So you have his peace already. So the grace is that God is giving you a purpose in this life. Is he sending you out to communicate the gospel by your words and by your deeds and with passion to your neighbors, to yourself, and even through our missionaries to the world, to the ends of the earth, so that the wonders of God's grace in Christ might be known. We come to the table now And you're only supposed to come to the table to dine if you have been called by God to be a child of God. This table is not for strangers to Christ. Nor is this for perfect people. But I've never really had to fence the table from perfect people. Haven't found any. The Bible says that as we come to the table, we come because he loved us and gave himself for us. We come because he invites us with a call. Come to the table that I've prepared for you. It's a cup of joy, a cup of blessing, and not a cup of condemnation because there is no more condemnation if you're in Christ. As Romans 5.1, I repeat, you have peace with God having been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, what is God calling you to do The first call is, of course, for salvation. If if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation, as it says in Hebrews, but but embrace. If God is calling you, don't, I mean, I would tell you, don't, don't put your fingers in your ears. Little Samuel didn't understand it when God called him, when he was just a little boy. He didn't understand the calling of God. And maybe you don't either. How is God pricking your heart, how God is moving you, how God is making you aware that he is, sometimes you need to be still to know that he is good and that he is God. When God is calling you by name, he may not knock you off your high horse, but he probably will, like he did in Acts 9 to to Saul. Gave him a new name, a new calling, and some new miseries. Man, sometimes you would say, oh, I'd like to be like the Apostle Paul. <laughs> I'm not sure you want to be shipwrecked that many times. I'm not sure that you want to be beaten. and I'm not sure you want to have people say all manner of evil against you falsely. But he loved the calling because he had a relationship with Jesus. And he was not ashamed, verse 16, of the gospel. He was amazed at the power of God to save people and the just They live by faith. They have an obedience of faith. Brothers and sisters, we now come to the table. The ushers, the elders are getting together, and we're about to come dine at the beginning of the year. As you hear the voice of the Lord calling you, there is a call for you to discern the Lord's body. You're not supposed to partake if you can't discern that. If you can't understand why Jesus went to the cruel cross, if you can't understand why he left his throne on high and his kingly crown to come to this earth, if you can't understand the joy that was set before him to endure the cross. You're probably not a good candidate for communion. But if God has opened your eyes up to see that he loved you that much, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever is resting in what he has done would not perish but have everlasting life. Let me pray as the elders come forward. Our Heavenly Father, we have heard the word. We've heard Paul's introduction to this great epistle. And in this epistle, I can't stop but be amazed that you are the author and the finisher of this great salvation. God, it's yours. It's your gospel. And you you already revealed it incrementally. You gave us clarification that it was going to be like this and this and this. And you told us that you were going to send your only son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. For it had to be the blood in order to be spilt, the righteous for the unrighteous, that propitiation could be made. Lord, we thank you so much that this great gospel has not been hidden from us, but that you have called people to take the good news to the ends of the earth, not only to Rome, but also to Lewis, Delaware. And in so proclaiming the good news... You have opened our eyes of faith and we have apprehended the risen Savior. As we come to the Lord's table today, I pray that we might search our hearts and see if there would be wicked ways remaining within us. I pray that you might help us to to, to depart from evil and to be the Haggai, the, the holy ones, that we would be set apart from this world and not like everybody else, but we would be set apart to be righteous like Christ. Oh Lord, I pray that as we come to this table that you will open our eyes of faith. The gospel has been proclaimed. The good news is ever before us, but it's not mere intellectual assent. Lord, help us to rest in what you have done. And that's what it means to discern the cross, to discern your love for us. That's what held you to Calvary's cross, not the nail. Lord, as we come to this table, prepare us to dine and commune with you. May it be ever so sweet. In Jesus' name.